Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to Unheard, the channel that seeks to combat herd mentality wherever we see it and promote independent thinking. My name's Freddie Sayers. It's not even a fortnight since British constituency MP Sir David Amos was murdered in a church while working for the people of Southend. And yet, have you noticed how it's barely talked about already? It seems strange that after such a momentous event, it would be passed over so quickly. Now, part of it is to do with the fact that the suspect, Ali Harbi Ali, has been charged, and so media outlets are understandably wary about interfering with an ongoing court process. But if we're honest, there is also a wariness to say what this really appears to be, which is an incident of Islamist terrorism on our shores. The suspect, a British Muslim of Somali heritage, had previously been referred to the PREVENT programme that is supposed to stop radicalisation. And yet most of the political discussion has been about social media, language, courtesy, with some MPs calling for a David's law requiring all social media users to be anonymous. We don't even know if Sir David's murderer was on social media, so it's a bit of a mystery why this, of all things, is the focus. We need to be able to talk about the issues, and I can think of no one better qualified to help us do that than Ayan Hirsi Ali. Born in Somalia, she escaped an arranged marriage and immigrated into the Netherlands as a refugee, where she rose to become an outspoken MP herself and had multiple death threats issued for saying home truths about the religion she was born into. Now she is a citizen of the United States, but still she has to travel with security wherever she goes. I don't think it's shyness. I think implicit in the fact that 10 days after the event, we've moved on, we're talking about other things. I think implicit in that is, let's just live with Islamist terrorism. It's here to stay. It's no longer seen as something that will ever go away. And we will grieve for individuals like David Amos, Member of Parliament, but also for innocent people whose names and faces we don't know. But we know that Islamist terrorism is with us. And I guess, um, I guess the message I take away from this is get used to it.
So let's try not to fall into that trap then. I mean, what, what we should be talking about, when it, the, the terror aspect is referred to in this case, a lot of people have been talking about this lone wolf idea that it wasn't necessarily a community that we should be talking about. It, was, it appears to be an individual who may have been radicalized on their own, sort of on the internet, in the bedroom, that kind of thing. In general, what do you think of that concept of, of sort of lone wolf terrorism? It's a fallacy. It's, it's a fantasy in some ways, because if we reassure ourselves that it's just one individual who's crazy, we have a lot of crazy people, crazy people on the far right, crazy people on the far left, and then just simply crazy people. And if these individuals go online and um, they fall in love with content that's destructive, um, I think it, it sort of feeds into the mentality that... Islamist terrorism is here, and you have to just learn to live with it. So then we make up these stories about lone wolves and internet radicalization, Imam Google. Uh, obviously, none of that is true, and I think deep down we know that. Uh, I've been reading quite a little bit about the history of Prevent and what they do and the ways in which uh, that program has been frustrated. And if you have over three quarters of the people who are being watched by MI5, they're Islamist terrorists, but you keep preferring these lowly white supremacist types, then I guess implicit in that is also a choice. We know how to control white supremacy. That's why we're not so afraid of it, do we? The, the white supremacists speak English. We know where to find them. We know how to infiltrate them. We know what their ideas are. But with the Islamist terrorists, it's a different case altogether. So this is the fact that actually there's almost a kind of political correctness, even surrounding the Prevent program, which is that they are very eager to take on a wide range of potential radicals. So it doesn't look like it's targeted specifically at the Muslim community. What do you say? Should we be more honest about that and, and say that the, the problems of Islamic terror are different? And they are different. And I think the true professionals within Prevent, the people who set it up, they know that. The people who work there know that. Um, but there, there are all these forces and pressures upon them from the organized Islamist lobby that you have in the UK who cry Islamophobia at every turn. And then you also have the woke people who have wokeified every program that you can think of. Muslims are a minority in the UK, they're immigrants. And so whenever you can exploit that narrative of victims, just exploit it. And so with these pressures, the prevent program is not effective. It can't be effective if it's going to prevent everything, then it's going to prevent nothing. A cynic might say, or someone, I guess, maybe less, less spirited might say, it's never going to work anyway. I mean, if you're a radical and that you're, you're 25 years old and you're hot-headed and you're convinced that you're going to go to heaven if you murder someone and you want to stab someone or blow someone up, are you really going to be averted from that by attending some government-sponsored course where you know, bureaucrats try to tell you how bad terrorism is? I mean, are we deluding ourselves? I think part of it is um, perhaps in delusional if you think I'm just going to talk you out of your ideology and your religion 
uh, without addressing those issues and without addressing the consequences of what that means, why do you hold this philosophy to be true? Why do you want to act on those tenets? I don't know if um, those questions are asked and how honest and transparent these programs are. But I think in a liberal society also, we just want to keep on attempting to keep our liberal order. And in order to do that, we believe in everyone is innocent until they're proven guilty. And we look at individuals, we don't look at groups, we protect our minorities. We want to observe all of these things. And I think our leaders feel defeated when they are lobbied and they're pressed to say, please don't talk about Islam in association with terrorism or women's rights or homophobia, just don't mention it. And so if then you're put in a position where you're not allowed to talk about the animating idea, how can you ever prevent it? Just spell that out. What is the animating idea? What do individuals like whoever was responsible for this, what do you understand is, is in their head? Any jihadist who's responsible for a terrorist attack is obviously waging jihad, which means holy war. And now that's when you start getting into religious concepts, theology, the uh, long history that leads us to uh, the rise of Islam as a religion. And uh, the example that is cited by every Islamist over and over again for their actions is the Prophet Muhammad. And the Prophet Muhammad was in Mecca the first 10 years when he introduced the religion, he was not successful. But later on when he goes to Medina and he starts to preach jihad, Hollywood violence is used, he's extremely successful. And so I think there is this harking back on that romance of that moment. And it's very, very important that we are open and transparent about these things. The way we try to understand other isms I'm not talking about Islam in general. I'm talking about Islamism. And the ism is, it, it, it pertains to the political philosophy of Medina, not Mecca, not everything that the Prophet's legacy is, but only partially that. And so if we talk very honestly about that, we're going to understand what it is that moves young men and increasingly also young women into making these choices, killing strangers. I mean, David Ames was by a man who didn't know him. So that's another kind of awkward truth, isn't it? That it's not exclusively young men who are thought of as almost kind of hot-headed teenagers. Actually, they're surrounded by communities of people who understand what sort of position they're in. Young women, we have famously had Shamima Begum uh, here in the UK, but you, you've told the story of how your own sister uh, was radicalized. I mean, women can also be involved in this and it can go quite wide in the community. There are pieces of research about the percentage of British Muslims who have some sympathy with ideas of Sharia law and some sympathy with uh, ISIS when it was going. And, you know, it's a non, it's not a tiny percentage. So. How do we kind of address that wider problem? I think what you've addressed right now, you hit the nail on the head of the lone wolf nonsense. If you buy into this ideology, then it's not just the young, hot-headed teenage males. It's also the females. And what emerges is um, a network. And some of some of the time, these networks are blood relations, brothers and sisters, nephews, nieces, cousins, and so on. And sometimes it goes wider. And 
but there is a community of like-minded people who have a similar worldview that's not yours and not mine, and it's got it's uh, it's seeded in the religion of Islam, and I think that's the particular challenge for peace-loving Muslims: is how do you separate this extreme way of observing one's faith from the larger community, which is not violent. And actually, talking of Somalis, most Somalis came to the UK fleeing violence. And so if I were to have a conversation with the Somali community, I would say, how do we address this? And how can we get help from the British government and the British people and the British civic society? And they will be way more honest than some of the people at Prevent who have been muzzled. So you actually think talking, for example, to the Somali community, we have, a, I think, one of the largest Somali communities in the world here in the UK. Are there things that are specific about that community that you know coming from that country that we should be thinking about um, in terms of trying to get them on board with solving this problem internally? Yes, I think family is very important to the general. You know, Somalis are a group people. They are uh, they're collectivist minded. They're clans and they're entrepreneurial. They love to help their family. I can call anyone from my extended family when I'm in trouble and say, "Please come and help me." I don't do that anymore because, of course, I left the religion and that puts a barrier between my relatives and me. But what if I had gone the other way? What instead of saying I'm no longer a Muslim and provoking my community in that way, I had provoked them in the other way. Instead of inviting violence because I left Islam, what if I actually committed violence in the name of Islam? What would they do? And I think there are, you will find individuals within that community uh, who are perceptive enough and smart enough to say, Yes, we have this problem, we need to address it. But the only way we can do it is if we're honest from all corners. Because what, what is a Somali mother going to do? What will the sisters do? What are they going to see when they, they see one of their own become ever more pious, right? So when do you go from just being a moderate observer of your religion to a pious observer to a militant Islamist? who is ready to wage jihad. And I think most Somalis who've been around that type of individual, and it's very common these days, you will know. You see, that to me strikes me as much more convincing as a solution to this. You know, if the, if the mothers and the relatives, the, you know, the, the reason they left Somalia, presumably, is because they didn't want their sons turning into thugs and gangsters and whatever else was happening over there, they wanted a, a better jihad. life, right? So, so yeah. can we... Can... Kids to be they didn't want their kids to be jihadists. They didn't want their boys to go and join Al-Shabaab. So they brought them to the UK and in the hope that they will go to school and have a great education, have a great career and make something useful of them. That is, that's the driving hope. That's constantly what we've been told especially for the boys. And actually, then it's a betrayal of their mission. It's a betrayal of the community for them to go back to that kind of violence. Yes. 
Um, but again, you won't get help from the community if you don't define the problem. In fact, in some ways, it's easier for the wider family circle and social circles to say, give me, an, give me a place where I can go and tell my story or the story of my relative and what I think is happening to my relative. But then if I want to come to that place, I want to speak to someone who really understands what it is that I'm going through, which is facing the, and, and this is human nature. I don't want to betray a family member. I don't want to feel like I'm reporting him to an out group or the government or whatever. On the other hand, I don't want him to kill someone. And I also don't want him to go to prison for the rest of his life. That's not what I invested in. So where do I go? So you need people. How can I stop? You, you need people, kind of inside, inside that community. Yes, and I think we have them. We have people inside that community. That is why I think most terrorist activities and plots have been prevented. And so we only talk about the things that go wrong, but we barely talk about the plots that were actually foiled. But if you compare those that were foiled and why they were foiled to why this one is not, um, then I think you're going to have to understand that there is going to be a degree of trust. So we've talked about what you can do and encourage inside these communities. Is there also a job to do in the wider culture to make sure that the kind of Western culture that these new arrivals join is better yeah. expressed or somehow competes better with these kind of um, Islamist ideas if they do come into contact with them, what can the rest of us do? Well, if you talk about, you know, again, I want to go back to the suspects <laughs> and uh, my hypothesis that. Uh... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, he is animated by this ideology, which is a political philosophy for what, you know, how society should live. And there are competing ideas and philosophies of how to organize a society. Islamism is just one of them. An animating one, a big one, but it's just one of them. There are others. The trouble is that liberalism also as a philosophy, a competing philosophy, is not competing. It is just people saying it's okay for you to believe in your ism and carry it out to uh, its logical conclusion but somehow, as liberals, we're immune, we're inoculated against your isms because we just let you be in the hope that one day you're going to come and see things from our side. And then there is a subset of liberals, I don't think of them as liberals, the woke, who are flagellating, self-flagellating about whatever it is that we did in history and didn't do. And we are to atone for all the historical atrocities like slavery and, you know, the rest of it um, by allowing these other isms to dominate. Is that what we're doing? Because that seems to me to be the conclusion of let it rip. So actually, th that woke stuff, as you, as you call it, you know, we constantly, it's constantly dismissed as like a culture war or it's a sideshow, it's an obsession of pundits from the left and the right, and it's this kind of meaningless flamethrowing thing. But what you're saying is actually it's potentially quite dangerous because if our kids are being taught that this culture they now live in is evil, it's going to be yeah. easier to, to take negative action like terrorism against that culture. You're actually helping the the... the what I call the dawah, those who propagate this radical ideology of uh, Islamism, you're helping them because what they say during their sermons is that these societies and the philosophies that they're based on are ungodly and sinful and they ought to either be reformed or destroyed. And to reform means to come into the fold. And if you don't come, then it's a holy war. The woke are saying pretty much the same thing. They're saying the foundational institutions serve only the white heterosexual male oppressor. And he, that's the dominant story. And so it's the dominant story because he's the dominator. We have to bring him down a couple of notches. When you combine those two, with the other competing ideologies and you see what's happening within institutions, then it becomes extremely difficult to defend our liberal order based only on ideas. So how do we defend it better then? I mean, this is the this is like the crunch, isn't it? Because we have yeah. people like Eric Zemmour over in France, who yeah. most people in the UK would consider totally unacceptable, uh, extremist, far right, you know, among his proposed policies, I understand there's a degree of repatriation of immigrant groups, which is something that no politician here in the UK would possibly suggest. 
that he talks in a very kind of romantic and passionate way about Western ideals, about do you, are there things we need to be careful of and also learn from those kind of people? Well, I think maybe the first thing we should do is not call Eric Zemmour far right and extremist and a white supremacist. I don't speak French, but everything I find out about him is that he is basically asking the questions we are all avoiding. He is saying, if this is our philosophy of all life, liberalism, the ideals of the enlightenment and the outcome of the enlightenment, rationality. You know? And there's a group of people who are from elsewhere and they refuse to adopt those. Should it then not, is it then not logical to say repatriation or deportation or go back home, go back to where you think you're philosophically at home? That's simplistic. But these are questions that need to be asked. When I say simplistic, that's because it doesn't address the issue of domination. What if I want my set of ideas to dominate your set of ideas? What if I want to be the dominant leader in society? What will you do then? Then I'm not going to be repatriated. I'm going to fight on. But then in order to fight on, then you have to be completely honest. And in terms of fighting, I don't mean gunfire and physical uh, brutal force, I'm talking about a confrontation between these sets of ideas. So if we tie our hands behind our backs and we're not able to explain to the immigrants who come here why it is attractive to be here, why is it attractive to be in the UK as opposed to Somalia? Why do you live in London instead of Mogadishu? I mean, Why they, is they it presumably that, have an answer to that question, given that they've just risked life and limb to travel the world to get here. That's the mysterious thing about this. Um, you know, I, it's not mysterious. I think that's the thing we need to repeat over and over again: is to remind immigrants and new generations, the millennials, the Gen Z, the people who have no clue what it took to get the UK to be what it is, as opposed to what Somalia is. The only way to educate those people is to repeat over and over and over again what is at stake and the choices that they made with their feet. Yeah, there are people trying to cross the channel now into the UK, risking their lives. You have to hold that up and say, why, why are you doing that? Why can't you stay at home in the country that you were born? You won't stay there because you have no liberty. You have no rule of law. You have no... Uh, as women, you have no rights. If you happen to be gay, you're going to be thrown off a, a tall building or subjected to all sorts of humiliations. It's arbitrary, it's anarchy, it's authoritarianism. That's what you're fleeing. You're coming here, it's the opposite of that. And I think that that is the kind of honest conversation we need to be having constantly. So we need to, what you're saying is not be embarrassed about sounding jingoistic or worry about stepping on kind of relativist ideas and basically say, here is better than where you came yes. from. We like the yeah. culture we have and teach it passionately. Teach it passionately and say, we welcome you with open arms. If you are, if you are willing to be a part of this and accept our ideas and ideals and norms, these are norms and values that actually worked. So I, I, I always like to give the example of, I mean, Thomas Hobbes did this way better than I did, but in Britain today, uh, if you are not exposed to some of these isms, you die peacefully in your bed of old age, surrounded by your family. 
that's what's on offer. You live in a place like Mogadishu, and do you know? Do you want me to give you, uh, you know, how how graphic can I be in telling you? Life is short and nasty and brutal, and you don't want to live there, so you're here. So you want a long life, a pleasant life, a peaceful life. Welcome, but here's what made this place. One interesting detail is this generational question, because, for example, Jihadi John, who was this famous uh, British Muslim, British-born Muslim who went out to ISIS, the same is true of Shamima Begum, and the current suspect, um, Ali Habi Ali, they're all second generation. So I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, that actually the first generation seems to arrive more with those kind of ideas, and then the second generation has some kind of identity crisis. Because they go to the schools where they're told you're all colonialists and you're all um, terrible at everything about the history of the country that their parents came to, to escape persecution and anarchy, that that country is the cause of it all. And so if you have it coming at you from the extremist religious leaders who are saying, well, in any case, God wants you to wage holy war. And then you have it coming from the institutions of education run by the woke and where these crazy things like DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion philosophy is what's put in your head. And you're told constantly you're a victim of these white people. They've robbed your people. They've colonized your people. They've enslaved your people. They've raped your women. So you come, it, it's coming at you from two sides and now you're, you're hating and you're angry and you're a young man or a young woman. And I think that is, we don't do ourselves a service by listening to the woke. So I would say de-wokeify the school curricula, not only for the immigrants, but also for the new generations of of British children, I don't know, white children, you know, the native people. What about the parents, though? They they must get some responsibility for this as well. Uh, if they are yeah. bringing up these children, what stories are they telling that might affect their perception of their new country? So I think if I just limit myself to the Somali community, one problem is that the first generation keep telling this story, we're going back. When our country becomes peaceful, we're going back and things will be better there. So they never give their children an opportunity. Yes, they want them to go to school and have a career, but they want them to take that career and that money. They want to take it all back. And so these two, the children are caught in between where they are. Am I now a British um, citizen? Or am I living in this fantasy of what Somalia could be like? So that's one, one problem with the first generation. I think another problem with them is um, they may not be religious or extreme in their religiosity, but they allow that to happen to their children because they're worried, especially with boys, that boys will go on the path of drinking and drugs and debauchery and become useless. So if you get a young man who's now praying, going to the mosque and being kind and observant, 
I think they take, the parents sometimes take the easier path of saying, oh, that's a wonderful development without looking into perhaps the shadow side of that. And I think in that sense, maybe um, the parents could, could sit together and say, how do we navigate this? Um, and I think a third problem for the parents especially is it, 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 it's their neglects and, and their demonizing of the value systems of the countries that they have come to. They like the freedom, they like they like the money, they like stuff like that. But when it comes to the building blocks, which is just the, the philosophical building blocks, either they don't bother to learn those or they reject them. That confuses the children even more. Let's try to conclude, Ayan, with some kind of sense of the prospects here, because it sounds like a very, very difficult problem. And you've been studying it for decades, and here we are again in a scenario that looks horribly reminiscent. Do you have any hope that we're going to find a way through it? I have hope because, again, if you just if I just limit myself to studying the ism that is radical Islamism, um, it's it's blunted. It's losing its attractiveness. Um, I think you think about a young man like Anjum Chaudhry, who's very well known in the United Kingdom. I despise his worldview. I think his ideas are completely nuts, but he's honest. He's more honest than the man in suits and tie. And so if I engage, if I, if I were to engage with him and say, so you are leading me to your ism and saying, this is the utopia. Well, the utopia is ISIS, right? It's where they chop people's heads off. It's where they enslave women. It's where they throw gay men from tall buildings. It's brutality upon brutality if it is translated into practice. Now you come to Anjum, you're in, uh, he's a Brit, isn't he? Uh, you, you are in Britain and look at how we live. Uh, my idea wins over yours. That's not punching down. That's not, you know, being superior. It's just the idea is superior. The idea of liberalism and the enlightenment and rationality and secularism is superior to the idea and ideas that ISIS is peddling. So Anjum, if we have this kind of open debate and conversation, Anjum Chaudhary will have less and less people to attract because they will learn to ask these questions. And all we need to do is teach our young people how to think and what sorts of questions to ask and what, you know, what logic is and what reason is. And in that, I'm hopeful. And if we fail, we discuss Mr. Zemmour, we may be much closer than people realize to things getting much nastier because if the majority is pushed and pushed, they will eventually lose patience. And France seems a lot further down that road than Britain at this point. And we don't know how well he will do in the election. You know, we, we could be closer to some kind of much nastier reaction from the majority than people realize. That's right. And I think for the last three decades, next year, I will be in the West for 30 years. So that's three decades straight. And for 30 years, I all I've heard is, mm, give it time, it'll go away. All these um, challenging ideas, they'll just disappear. They'll evaporate. People will come around to a way of doing things. It'll rub off. It's not rubbing off. You really have to articulate it. 
And my takeaway from this is those people who say, let's just postpone, because that's what it means to me. That's the way I read it is instead of having the confrontation now, we're postponing it. And the more we postpone, the bigger the problem gets. And the bigger and the nastier. And the more people become hardened in their positions. And I think that is one thing that we, um, I hope that all of these lessons, I hope that David Amos didn't die in vain. And I don't think he wants to be remembered for some silly social uh, media nonsense. I think if you really truly want to pay a tribute to his memory is to say, now we are, we are standing up for what it is that he died for. Ayan Hesiali, thank you so much. Thank you, Freddie. That was Ayan Hirsi Ali, writer, unheard columnist, sharing her views from a position, you've got to say, of huge authority in that she comes from Somalia. She has lived this transition. She has lived here in the West for 30 years, and she was really expressing herself very directly there about what she thinks about the issue of terror and what we need to do about it. Thanks to her for joining, and thanks to you. This is Unheard. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.